Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan and this is my co-host Gavia. Hello. So this week we watched Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, unequivocally one of the best superhero movies ever made, starring Shamik Moore as teen Spidey Miles Morales and Jake Johnson as his mentor Peter B. Parker, a trash millennial Spider-Man from another universe. This animated reboot is getting rave reviews for its groundbreaking animation and hilarious yet sensitive storytelling. I saw this yesterday at 10.30 in the morning. And the first of four movies I saw yesterday, and uh, still, I think, freshest in my mind, although I do want to see it again at some point. Uh, I fucking love this. I loved it so much. It's going to be in my top ten movies this year, unless something really dramatic happens in the next month. I think it's the best superhero movie I've ever seen. I was absolutely blown away by it. I think it's incredible. Yeah, I'm looking forward to discussing it because I think it's great. <laughs> yes. yeah, we haven't really <laughs> talked about this. I saw that Morgan loved it and I was like relieved, although I was expecting her to love it because I think basically every person who has seen this film has just been like, this is incredible, which is very rare. Usually there's at least some detractors, but it's just like, it is both a crowd-pleasing example of literally the most mainstream possible genre in Hollywood. And it's also really artistically innovative and interesting and sort of fresh and just very entertaining and fun to watch you know like spider-man is practically an in-joke now that it's been rebooted too many times homecoming was really good i think we did an episode on it it was just you know i I have loads of affection for homecoming and i think it's a great movie um but it is very much just sort of like a good example of the current house style of marvel films and i think by and large all Marvel Studio movies are basically just fine. And occasionally you'll get something like Black Panther where they really have like an individual kind of idea and it's really, you know, it's really well executed and stuff. But with Into the Spider-Verse, you know, it's visually more interesting than any of these films, obviously, which you can tell just from the trailer. Uh, But it's also very character-focused storytelling instead of being sort of character points revealed through a very formulaic structure of adventure movie and I think this really kind of was brought home to me because I saw this and Aquaman on the same day for review purposes so Aquaman you know (laughs) is fine there's pretty mixed responses to it for reasons that I understand like some people are just like I love all the bonkers stuff of this like the fact that they're you know riding on seahorses that whinny which is very entertaining and there's Pitbull covering Toto's Africa on the soundtrack and mermaids and like yeah sure all of this is very fun but the film is like a thousand fucking years long. It is so long. It is pretty sexist. And the actual structure of the story is extremely dull. Whereas Into the Spider-Verse, like basically every element of it, you can tell that they have thought about it very hard. And then they've got a very talented creative team who have really pushed the limits of what they can do. And then the end result is something that is both very kind of, it makes you really think about stuff and makes you feel, but it's also like, it's just so fun. But yeah, Morgan, can you give like a plot summary? Because I feel like we need like a little intro for anyone who... Sure. So the main character of this is Miles Morales, who people have been begging for a movie or a TV show about for years, who is in middle school in New York. He's from Brooklyn and has been sort of selected to go to this... I don't know if it's charter it's school a charter or what. School. Yeah, yeah. In in the comics, it's sort of like he, you pass an entrance test, but then there's a lottery, so yeah. he gets into this really great school. And he is not happy about it because he thinks it's elitist. And his father, who is a cop, is like, "You're going, like, grow up." And he's uncomfortable. He's kind of trying to bomb out, and then he winds up getting bitten by a radioactive spider, 
and then in the course of events sees this like hadron collider basically which is opening up a portal to other dimensions the spider-man from his universe who is slightly different from the spider-man we're familiar with but also is peter parker dies chris pine chris pine peter parker dies (laughs) dies and then all these other spider people come through the one he initially interacts with is our i'm using air quotes spider-man who is now kind of like 40 years old and having a midlife crisis and dad bod spider-man oh my god it's so good he's played by jake johnson in a truly spectacular performance and then they have to sort of stop the kingpin the baddie from using this thing again and like ripping the fabric of space-time apart and all of these other you know spider-man characters you know gwen stacy and other people wind up like teaming up to stop this and um most of them have different kind of animation styles associated with them, depending on the their comic book character. So like Miles and Peter are just animated in the kind of house style of the movie, which is itself very distinctive. But then the Spider-Man characters who come through who are less central to the plot, who you meet a bit later on, like one of them is an anime character, one of them is like a noir character, and then one of them is Spider-Pig, voiced by John Mulaney, which is just like, <laughs> oh, delicious. Yes, the, the one thing I told Morgan about this film before it came out was I just emailed her being like, did you know that John Mulaney plays a Looney Tune in this movie? <laughs> oh my god. And so all of them are animated in their own styles. So like the anime character is animated like an anime character, and then the noir character, voiced by Nicolas Cage, who's, I could not, I knew immediately that I knew who it was, and I couldn't figure out that it was Nicolas Cage till the end, and then I was like, of course! Like, very fun voice acting, too. That man loves his superheroes. You, you know what his kid's name is, right? No. Oh, yes, of He course. named, yeah, yes. kal Yeah. His yeah, name yeah, yeah. is Superman's name. Amazing. <laughs> um, And he is animated like a, like, in black and white, in this noirish style, and then Spider-Pig is in this very, like, two-dimensional, you know, Looney Tunes mm-hmm. way. And um, that is only the sort of scratching the surface of the interesting visual stuff going on in this movie, much of which is difficult to describe because it is so visual. Like, talking about it is hard, especially without having, like, examples literally in front of my face right now, which I do not have. But it is basically the only superhero movie I've ever seen that actually engages with the visuals of comic books in an interesting way. So like something yes. like Thor Ragnarok, I know that Taika Waititi really drew from various comic books in terms of like the production design of that movie, which was very cool. But this does so much with actual like comic book imagery in a way that is just brilliant. And then also is obviously playing with the fact that it has all these characters from these different things and is riffing on the fact that this is a character like Spider-Man as a concept that has been rebooted so many times and so is like commenting on the superhero genre in a very interesting way. So like I think this is the best superhero movie I've ever seen, but it couldn't have existed without like our cultural awareness and knowledge of all of these other things. Uh, it's just amazing. Like it's just an amazing movie. <laughs> it's so good. It's going to be it's a so very good. enthusiastic podcast. Yeah. Oh. I mean, something I mentioned in my review with regards to the fact that it's actually leaning into the visual aspects of comics is that it it works because it's animated, which is obviously kind of an obvious statement to make. 
Um, but with the live action films, there's both a ton of studio pressure that basically kind of sands off the edges of the interesting creative ideas that I, I'm sure a lot of the filmmakers have and then don't use. But also in live action, there's this sort of tension to do with the Uncanny Valley where no matter what you're doing, you are making a film that has human actors. And because they're very wary of having anything that seems too weird, basically what you're going to be having is a human actor who is fighting against either another human actor or a CGI monster that generally is not very convincing, like in Justice League, and basically has to fit in with the aesthetic of a a normal real-world scenario. So I think there's been far too much kind of flattering coverage of Guardians of the Galaxy and Doctor Strange for having kind of interesting colour schemes and that sort of thing, which is, like Morgan said, kind of like Thor Ragnarok riffing off elements of the comics. But they are essentially still just working within this sort of real world setting where everything basically just makes sense even when you've got sort of the inception mind-bending stuff that they have in Doctor Strange basically every contemporary superhero movie is like that and I was thinking about this when I was writing my review and there's basically only one superhero film I think that really achieved this with live action and it's the original Batman by Tim Burton and kind of the next one after that because he was just like I'm gonna make this like sort of like a very early black and white movie or like a theatrical production because it was kind of the the early period of Tim Burton when he was making genuinely really great looking films that were just like fantastic visual storytelling, really interesting design and costumes. And they really worked because it kind of leans into the operatic kind of noir stuff to do with Batman. Whereas modern Batman is just like so fucking realistic and pragmatic that it's just, you know, there's no interesting visual elements at all. But with animation, obviously you have just so much more creative leeway. So kind of unlike the most basic level with any kind of contemporary animated movie, you know, the the, the way that the characters look is that they have like exaggerated features, you know, because that's what a cartoon is. But with this, they just went so much further because they were like, well, we can just do what we want. So, so Kingpin, Wilson Fisk's character in this is, you know, he is like 50 times the size of Miles Morales. Like he's the size of a truck. He couldn't fit into his own car because he doesn't have to follow the laws of physics. So he's enormous. Just like the exaggerating character design just makes it like much more interesting visually, you know, and it helps kind of illustrate the character's personalities in a much more kind of evocative way. Yeah, um, I think you're definitely right about those early Batman movies. They're the only thing that I can think of that comes close to this. And of course, there's like some with some superhero movies, like you literally... I'm not saying like everyone should be leaning into the visual elements of the comics, but it's just that like, they feel like they literally can't, you know? Well, and the other good example, like I obviously love the dark Knight. I think it's an amazing, amazing film. And what Nolan was doing in that, this is the thing about those movies is that when he was making those early Batman movies, it was innovative. It was innovative. Right. Exactly. Because there hadn't been, that was the beginning of the superhero boom. Right, like yeah. I mean, Marvel it's like that stuff. and the Born Identity, like the way that the Born Identity came out and changed action filmmaking. Yes, exactly. But then, but also, like Christopher Nolan is an incredible director. So you watch those. I mean, the Dark Knight Rises, like we need not speak of, but those first two Batman movies, the direction of them specifically, even though it's not surreal in any way, is brilliant because he knows how to use a camera. And then you get the Marvel stuff coming after. And recently they've been leaning into sort of funnier or maybe a little more visually interesting stuff. Like obviously Black Panther is, you know, incredibly visually stunning. 
And of course, the first Iron Man movie was very funny because it basically is just like Robert Downey Jr. improvising for the whole film. But for the most part, their movies are kind of like they have some comedy in them, but they have follow very similar beats of like sort of a relatively like dramatic story and they're visually completely uninteresting because they don't hire and people like Christopher Nolan. the action scenes right? are really fucking uninteresting. Yes. Actually, Cap- the original Captain America is an exception because yes. that's the one that has like the 1940s pastiche elements and they hired someone who literally had done that before. So Yeah. But like, I think they kind of took the lessons from those Batman movies but like didn't understand that they were doing something specific, right? But... What I was, of course, thinking of watching this film was the original Sam Raimi Spider-Man films, which are totally, totally different to this. Like, very, very different movies. They're very sentimental. Yes. They have this very, very operatic quality and are visually stunning because Sam Raimi knows how to direct a fucking movie. And, like, I haven't seen those movies in a long time, and I'm sure in some ways they're quite dated. Like, I know that Mary Jane and them is basically just like a damsel in distress. But I have always considered them, even though I haven't seen them in a long time, like among the best superhero movies. And I mentioned them on the podcast before because they are very distinct from the Marvel stuff. They're just very, very different. And um, watching this, like I kept thinking of those movies, even though they are very different films. Because yeah, and these, and also this film intentionally calls back to them. You know, oh they yeah, have, like there's like a callback to the upside down kiss scene with Kirsten Dunst and that kind of thing. And the bad um, dancing sequence in the third <laughs> yes. one is very funny. <laughs> but I think that the, I think I actually saw the second Spider-Man movie first and then went back and saw the first and then the second again but i don't remember um and i think but i definitely those were the first superhero movies i ever saw and like everyone was really into them at that time they were really really popular they were really enchanting like they were just really mesmerizing and then i would have seen batman begins shortly after i think and um i just loved them and then obviously all of the other Spider-Man shit has happened since. But watching this, I was like, oh, like, I love Spider-Man. Like, it sort of like brought me back to that childhood place of yeah. remembering how exciting it is to watch him like swing between Well, the this is the thing, right? Swing, right? Like, so so the that is one of the reasons why Spider-Man specifically is so well suited to animation directors who have an interesting idea right because when you think about some of these other characters like i think both iron man and captain america um, and thor are all characters where you can essentially have them standing in a room having a conversation and as long as you've got it well characterized that is what you remember from the comics like there are visual elements that we associate with all of them but especially with Iron Man Iron Man can literally be sitting in a room having a boardroom conversation and what you want is Robert Downey Jr you don't need to have any kind of uh, visual element to make that feel like the character you need whereas with Spider-Man some of the stuff that you remember most viscerally from the original movies is swinging through the air and that's because from the comics they have so much material to work with because the original art is so specific and movements like the kind of kinetic style of the spider-man comics and that is like such a key element like that and spider-man's kind of sense of humor with all the quips i think are like if anything more important than kind of the core idea of an underdog hero because an underdog hero 
is is not a new idea and with this they managed to execute the things that actually have a really immediate sort of instinctual emotional resonance and they were like well we're just gonna have a new character and miles is a delight he is my wonderful son he is the world's wonderful son now he is so adorable and i love him he is great like just at first when when the movie first started and i realized he was in middle school and not in high school i was like is that too young? Like, it's just, you know, uh. and then I was like, no, it's perfect. He's perfect. I love it. (laughs) Because they do such a good job of characterizing him as like a kid of that age while still having him have agency and like a personality. And, you know, he definitely seems like a kid, but not like such like a child that you're like oh my god get out of there like you can't be doing anything right which obviously in real life if there were like a 13 year old in this situation you would be like where are his are his parents like you know get him home well, the, the thing that's like really great about this one is like he's he's young enough that um with kind of there's so many movies that are about kind of older teenagers or just adults kind of searching for a mentor or a father figure you know and in this one it's like he's young enough that he is still within the bounds of he will literally get scared of something and then go home to sleep in his bed at home and his parents will hug him and stuff because he's like 13, right? Um, but also he he literally has role models already. So he's got his dad, who's this sort of like slightly tough love kind of guy, but not like in a mean way. You know, he's just like, he's strict and he has high expectations and Miles is stressed about meeting his expectations, but not in like a toxic way. And then he also has his uncle Aaron, who's voiced by Mahershal Ali, who is, you kind of get the impression that he's a bit dodgy. But um, you only find out kind of in what context later in the film. But like he has father figures and that's kind of different from a lot of these stories where obviously in the Peter Parker sense, he literally doesn't have one because his parents are dead and Uncle Ben dies in the first act of the story as his origin story. But it, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting twist on the mentor relationship he has with Peter B. Parker because like the whole joke, which everyone, especially people of our generation fucking are loving about the adult Peter Parker, is that he is just a huge disaster area. You know, he's been Spider-Man for 22 years. He's divorced. Um, He's gained a lot of weight after the divorce. He's very trashy. He like eats food off the ground a lot. He doesn't, he's like unshowered and he doesn't give any good advice. And he's just this wonderful sort of older millennial character. And even though he is technically Miles's mentor, the only thing he can give him any good advice about is being Spider-Man. And even then, a lot of that advice is not useful or good in any way. So instead of it being like, oh, I found this new father figure, it's that Peter needs to learn how to be a father figure for his potential future child if he ever has one. And in general, he needs to learn how to be responsible. And the way that he's learning to be responsible is by learning how to be a responsible adult on someone else's behalf. Yes. (laughs) A reverse daddy issues movie. Exactly. Like he's the person. It's not that Miles, like obviously Miles is the main character. And he also has an arc, for sure. But like he doesn't need to change. Yeah, exactly. He needs to it's gain more than confidence. he's kind of like growing up. And exactly. Whereas Peter like needs to. Needs help. <laughs> <laughs> he's gotta. He's gotta get his shit together. And um, which he does. It's very satisfying. But I think, yeah. The, but this is the kind of thing where like we just recorded an episode about Mapa Treasure Island that will be coming out next. And we're talking about the kind of difference in strategies for children's movies and how that has changed over time, but also just different children's movies do different things where like some kids' movies will have like jokes for the parents, right? And it's very obvious that this is like a joke for the parents. The kids are not going to understand. And um, 
this movie is obviously not for like little kids. It is like every superhero movie. It is for everyone. Yes. But this struck me as like a really brilliantly executed plot because it's not that Miles isn't a relatable main character for anyone. Like if you've been a child, like you can definitely be like, oh yeah, I remember this being awkward. But the younger people in the audience will really relate to him. Whereas we can be like, oh yeah, (laughs) like... A messed up, depressed, (laughs) old. Like, that seems relatable to me. (laughs) Sounds good. And so they have these two entry points for the movie. Obviously, they're both men, but like, it's fine. I was not bothered by it. Yeah, I mean, I saw someone being like, does it even pass the Bechdel test? And I'm like, it probably does, but also it doesn't matter. Okay. (laughs) Who gives a shit? I, I didn't. I certainly didn't care at all. And the two entry points are both totally fully well characterized and allow people of like different ages to sort of enter the movie really effectively, which I thought was just like very smartly done. And it's so fucking funny. All the stuff with Peter, I was just laughing so hard. Like it was, oh boy, it's very, very entertaining. And he is only one of the many secondary characters who were very funny. The Gwen Stacy character isn't as, like, entertaining or full of personality, but I felt she was very well done, too. She's one of the only only sort of major female characters. But again, like, I wasn't I mean, bothered we're... by this. I there mean, you say that, that, but um, like... there's already, I'm, I'm very much in support of there's a new contingent of uh, Doc Ock and Aunt May Shepherds. Because <laughs> in this movie, we have a middle-aged female Sweet. Dr. Octopus. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she was great, voiced by the tremendous Catherine Hahn, who is excellent and everything. I thought that character was really fun. Lily Tomlin was Aunt May. And this was a very fun Aunt great. May. Great, <laughs> great. Yes. I mean, she's like got all the yeah. spidey gear and knows what's up. I, I prefer an older Aunt May, much as I, I love Spider-Man Homecoming and it's great. I think they were like, well, Aunt May's going to have a personality now. She's going to be cool. So she's going to be young and sexy. And it's like, what if she was old and cool which is what this film has done (laughs) (laughs) i mean i enjoyed spider-man homecoming at the time i thought it had some script issues in terms of like its themes which were very incoherent but i have not thought about it once since we discussed it like literally it has not yeah well this is what we're saying it's just like it's a really well executed example of Marvel Studios house style. Like they did a really great job. I, I actually think like some of the political themes in that were really interesting, like the way they wrote the vulture and so on. But in general, you know, it's not like innovating anything. Whereas this film is. <laughs> I mean, the themes, the thematic problems in that, as I recall, is that the whole point of the movie that everyone is telling him is that like, he can't work alone and he had whatever. But then in the end, that's exactly what happens. It's just like, what? Okay. Um, But a lot of what I felt watching this, not that I was thinking about this consciously a great deal during the movie, but I thought this movie made that movie look really superfluous and unnecessary and bad in retrospect. Not like it's a terrible film, obviously, but like, I was just like, why do we need that movie now? Why? Or like future movies about that Spider-Man, right? Like, who cares? Who cares? Because... So much of what this movie is doing is sort of poking fun at all of those other versions. Like, they don't specifically yeah. reference that version of Spider-Man, obviously. But um, it just made it feel so dated 
to me, even though it only came out like two years ago. It was kind of very, very impressive to me that this movie is filled with sort of genre savvy and self-referential humor, which is something that in a general sense, I'm extremely tired of in Hollywood, especially superhero movies. Um, I appreciate sincerity. And this film worked because it was extremely sincere, even when it was being genre savvy, but it was basically the opposite of Deadpool, which is the whole point is that it's all self-referential jokes. And there's a lot of kind of general pop culture references. Um, And in that film, it feels kind of exclusionary to me where it's like you're getting a pat on the back with that and Guardians of the Galaxy if you've heard of some reference. And in this film, um, the actual references, you didn't need to recognise the Spider-Man references. But if you did, that's nice. But also, this film was full of like Easter egg pop culture references to stuff that doesn't exist. Because all of the movies and TV shows and music in this film are fake. They're all made up for the movie. So the soundtrack is full of pop songs like that have been recorded for the film, obviously, which is the case for a lot of movies. But um, but there's also like posters for films that don't exist with like real celebrities in them and that sort of thing. And I was just like, it's a really cute kind of way of doing this trope, I thought, to like signal to everyone that this takes place in a different universe in the same way that all of these other universes take place in other universes, like the other the other Spideys. Well, what I thought was so smart about it was that it is definitely commenting on comic book movies, but it's not satiring them, which doesn't mean it ever is. It's making, it makes jokes at their expense from time to time, but it's not like, oh, ha ha, those movies suck. This movie is making fun of those movies. LOL. Like, that would not be interesting to me. I like satire. I could see that someone could at some point, like, make a version of that film if they were really brilliant that might work. Like, it would have to be I mean, be there are so good. many superhero satires, but, like, satires already. Right. This is why I'm saying, like, I'm not ruling this out as a possibility. It would have to be excellent. But, like, something like Walk Hard, for instance. Obviously a masterpiece. <laughs> right. But, like, that's a straight-up satire of a genre. A genre I don't particularly enjoy. But, like, that is something that really works, right? It's a satire of um, musician biopics, for those of you who are not familiar. So it can be done. But it's really difficult to do. Because it's fundamentally sort of mean-spirited. Right? Like, that's yeah. I mean, it's, what that yeah. kind of and thing And also is. there's the Watchmen problem. Because what you're describing for comics is Watchmen. And then everyone read Watchmen and was like, what if we just uh, copied Watchmen? <laughs> Whereas this, I sort of said at the top that this movie couldn't exist without all those other movies. And obviously it's referencing other Spider-Man movies explicitly. But it's it's more that it's like taking the fact that these movies, broadly speaking, have become our common cultural mm-hmm. language. And then is doing something with that. So I think probably this would still be like entertaining on a basic level even if you hadn't seen any superhero movie before because it just is fun but you obviously would not be grasping a great deal of what they're doing but simultaneously like i don't read comics so the specific other like spider-man characters who like yeah, show I mean, up even later I, I don't really read spider-man comics specifically so i I know that Spider-Gwen exists, but I didn't know anything about her story until they literally gave the little blurb in the movie and that was fine because they give you the little blurb. So, Exactly. So it doesn't matter. And 
even though I'm not a person who really reads comics, I am a person who has been alive in America for my entire life, right? So the visual stuff they're doing was sort of like they have text blocks at various points. And that's just one, you know, visual example. You know, this stuff is just so pervasive everywhere. Not just the movies, but also comic books. That it's just in our brains. It's in the cultural firmament. And so all of they're just sort of stewing all of this stuff together and then pushing out this unbelievably brilliant thing that is sort of playing with all this stuff that's in the back of our brains, but creating something that's very new. And I think that that's really, really hard. Yeah, I mean, in terms of what you were saying a minute ago about Homecoming and how this film basically makes Homecoming feel obsolete, um, like the issue with Homecoming is that they are trying so hard to kind of draw within the lines. So they're like, we need to do a Spider-Man movie. It needs to be Peter Parker. We have to tie in with the rest of the Marvel franchise. So we need to find something that makes Peter Parker feel fresh and kind of contemporary while also being kind of recognisable within the original brand. And so even though the film itself doesn't feel forced to watch, the concept is forced, right? Because it's like there is no cultural need for another Spider-Man reboot. So that film had to be really good to actually work, which it did. But part of the way they made him fresh is they literally stole Miles Morales's story. So they, so they took Peter Parker and they gave him Miles's best friend, who we see in, in this film quite briefly just as his roommate and doesn't really have a role and also doesn't I mean, he's very different. Like, he, basically, the character who is Peter's best friend in Homecoming is a carbon copy of the character from Miles's comics with his names changed. And then they changed a couple of other elements and put him in this geeky school, which is also Miles's concept. And so that meant that, like, he he just he just like appropriated the Miles stuff that made him like kill an individual. So with this film, they had to change some elements of Miles's story so he wasn't like seeming to have copied Homecoming. But also, like, every element of this just feels so much more fresh and interesting. Well, and also, I remember really enjoying the New York stuff in Homecoming because I was living in yeah. England at the time. It was like, oh, it's Queens. They did do a good job, but in this one, it's better. <laughs> it's so much better. I mean, it's technically an alternate version of New York, and they do have certain things that are different in a fun way, but it's very yeah. subtle. Like, it's definitely meant to be pretty much the same as our New York. And... I, Tom Holland in Spider-Man Homecoming is a white boy, as was discussed at length at the time. And Miles Morales is not. His father is black and his mother is Latina. And so, like, this movie doesn't harp on that at all. But there he has a conversation with his dad at the beginning about how like he feels uncomfortable going to this charter school because it feels elitist. And then, like, he's trying to sort of sabotage himself at the school so he can go back to his normal school. And his dad obviously does not want this to happen. And, like, that is sort of speaks to stuff going on in New York right now in a big way. And then the fact that he has this uncle who is, again, kind of dodgy and an un spoken way until later on in the movie and his father is a police officer and they have this tension in their relationship is just it's just way more interesting than this cute young white boy who like is played very well by tom holland who's a very good actor but like okay and just like especially at the beginning of the movie before all the spider-man stuff really starts happening you see him like walking around brooklyn with you know people he knows there and it's a very very accurate depiction of like multiracial Brooklyn in a way that I was like, oh yeah, 
Like, this is very familiar to me. Well, it was very one, cool. one of the things that really was brought home to me because I watched this in the same day as Aquaman is just the sheer volume of information that you learn about Miles, even in like the first half of the film, you know? Because I yeah. would say that of pretty much any superhero movie, this is the one that gives us the most, like just the, the most kind of all-encompassing characterization. Like we learn so much about him just in kind of basic factual sense as in we know his like hobbies like we know his graffiti art hobby like we know his music taste that kind of thing but he has so many more relationships and we know so much more about his kind of cultural and emotional background in this film than we do in a lot of franchises like with multiple films and like with Aquaman you literally do not know in Aquaman whether Aquaman has a house we we do not (laughs) he has no social circle apart from his father and he doesn't seem to live with his father, but he also doesn't have an apartment. We know that he owns a pair of jeans because he swims around in jeans a lot. That is all we fucking know. Um, Aquaman <laughs> likes beer and has a dad, right? Miles Morales has this huge world around him. We know so much about him and there's so much kind of subtlety to the relationships he has and like kind of the politics behind like the New York stuff and like the race stuff and stuff like that. And it's just like, there is a lot of material here. And it is multi-sensory because we get it on the soundtrack and we get it in terms of his body language and like the the way that his new school reacts to him and that kind of thing. And that's literally before they managed to introduce way more characters than you can usually characterize in this sort of film. And it just it just goes to show like how lazy some of the bigger crossover movies are because this film has like a pretty big cast and it does have essentially two protagonists like weighted towards Miles, obviously. But there are crossover movies where you have this, you know, you have one or two protagonists and then four supporting characters. And they're like, well, we just don't have time to give any of these characters an emotional arc because we're too busy with the fight scenes. And it's like, no, you fucked up. (laughs) Clearly it's possible because they just did it. (laughs) Well, I think obviously part of that is just this movie is outrageously well written. And part of it is that they have certain advantages built in. One of which is that they are not bound to having a bunch of action sequences because they're doing an animated movie and clearly no one was like, you have to have an action sequence every 15 minutes, which is generally the rule for Mm -hmm. the action movies that are live action. So it's not that there are no action set pieces. There very much are. There's a very funny one where they're breaking into like the evil, you know, company's science lab and trying to steal something and it all kind of is goes wrong and it's very entertaining but you know i wasn't counting the minutes but like the proportion of time in the movie spent on scenes of that nature is way lower than in something like you know captain america civil war those scenes are also well executed and you actually get character information during them which is due to the filmmakers knowing what the fuck they're doing also when they do introduce like a bunch more characters later on they have this advantage where they're all illustrated yeah differently right so you know it's you can differentiate between them very easily because they're so different and they don't need arcs right so like they're kind of just there to be there and like they've talked about you know doing sequels and whatever but there's much less pressure to be like well every single one of these characters has to have their own franchise and this is basically brand management like i don't think i mean i think every everyone will want like peter b parker back but we do not need to have a spider pig or a penny parker the anime girl or a noir spider-man back like it doesn't fucking matter (laughs) 
it's right. It's fine. And so they've done a really good job of having all of these characters in a way that's really entertaining. And then like the, you know, Miles's family, all of those characters feel like distinct people and they're all serving his story, but they're serving his story. So basically you do just have the two protagonists and the rest of the story is revolving around them. It's just that they have done a really good job of making all those other people feel like people, or in the case of the other sort of Spider-Mans, they, they feel like weird types, but they're so funny that like, it's fine. Whereas with something like an Avengers movie, they all are going to have their own movies not all of them, but so many of them are. And then they're like, well, everyone has to have a moment. It's like, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter at all. But it's a completely different objective, right? Like these people are actually trying to make a good film. And like, not the people working on the Avengers aren't trying to make, do a good job, but like, they're not trying to make a movie. They're trying to do an installment of a television show that has been running for the past 10 years. (laughs) which is boring to me personally, which is why I don't watch them anymore. But that's another story. I'm trying to think of what else there is to discuss about this movie. I the mean, music. I could just go on and on. Oh my God, the music. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, which is not actually what you're talking about, is the Christmas <laughs> music. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Chris Pine's Christmas album, which you can listen to on Spotify. <laughs> it is... It is Chris Pine Shameek and singing Shameek Spider-Man Moore Christmas Tree. And Jake Johnson. <laughs> they are all featured. So good. So basically the pitch of this is that um, Peter B. Parker, the, the sort the of trash, trash Spider-Man. 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 Trash Spider-Man. One of his poorer endeavors in his like 30s is that he recorded a Christmas album that he regrets. If you stay through the whole credits, you get to hear a bit of this and it's very funny. And he, it's just, it's very entertaining. But this was one of the things that I thought was just like, they've thought so much about everything in this movie, right? Like all down to the, all the little details. Well, it's like, it's like fanfic. Like it's like They're usually just like, all of oh, these little extraneous yeah. things that the fans think up. And it's like, there's so few yes. franchises that have this level of extraneous information. And the reason why Star Wars and Star Trek are so beloved is because they're just like, we will have the Christmas album for such and such a character. Whereas superhero movies just don't fucking do that. They'll give you like one like minor detail about a character and then everyone will have to like invent a novel length explanation for it. You know, whereas in this, they're like, we're putting everything in it. It's all great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the... Christmas album and the failed restaurant that he's trying to open and then like whatever else. And again, like some of the other characters, as I said, are just kind of types in an entertaining way. But with the central characters, they do so much work to make them feel like actual human beings in a way that these mainstream movies and not just superhero movies, but like big, big studio movies in general, just don't make the effort to do. And sometimes that's fine. So like Mission, the recent Mission Impossible movie, right? Which is like, I think one of the better movies of the year. I loved it. But it's just like pure action. Seeing it again. Pure action. Right. It's pure action movie. It's trying to do something completely different. That is fine. It doesn't matter. But it's so novel to get a movie where so much thought has gone into all of those little details of the characters in their lives. Like it's just not a priority for most of these movies. And like it's more like watching a like an indie film where that stuff has been well, thought about. Last night I saw Barry Jenkins watch this movie last night and was tweeting about it. 
he was very enthusiastic as you might imagine but one of the compliments he said is he was like if someone told me this was the jury prize winner of like a 24 year old animation new animation grad from this animation festival i would be like yes it is (laughs) because it has that level of sort of inventiveness right and like obviously apart from like copyright issues which you know would make that difficult i was like yeah that totally seems plausible to me right and so I was looking up the directors last night who are Bob Persichetti, Peter Ramsey, and Rodney Rothman. And Bob Persichetti uh, has never directed a movie before. Obviously, he's worked on like, the an- animation department of many animated films. Peter Ramsey... Well, he made Rise of the Guardians, and he's like one of the only yes. African-American animation directors. Yeah, so... And then that's like the biggest thing that any of them has done as far as direction and he again obviously has done like the art department for a ton of movies like animated movies and then rodney rothman has a bunch of writing credits on various things including 22 but it was produced by phil lord and chris miller is the thing so they were like we found some geniuses (laughs) we're gonna put them in a room so this is like their victory dance after getting fucking booted from solo earlier this year yeah, and so, like, there are people everyone has been talking about in association with this movie, and, like, I initially thought that they had directed it, and I was like, oh, it's surprising that no one has been talking about before this month, like, this movie that they directed. When did they have time to do they this? Did and not. I was like, oh, no, they did <laughs> they, not direct they it. Kind they kind of produced did it. Early, early pitch and kind of conception, but the actual execution was these directors. Right. And obviously, like, they were involved and did work on it, but they, they were not the yeah. main force. And these people obviously have a lot of experience in the industry, but there's a difference between that kind of stuff, like directing a film. Um, Phil Lord co-wrote the movie with Rodney Rothman and is has a story credit. But it does kind of make sense in terms of like, okay, so these people who were sort of working away in, you know animation departments or whatever for a long time and then finally got the keys to the kingdom essentially and then just like fucking went for it but there's like there's there's two elements of that that i was like found really interesting kind of in the background um one of which is there's this interview with jake johnson who voiced peter b parker which we will link to in the show notes where i mean most of the interview is actually him talking about how kind of discomfited he is with the hollywood filming making industry like in a really interesting way but he was also talking about the making of this film and they just refilmed it for like two years. They just like re-recorded it to make sure all the jokes landed, to make sure like the animation worked, that kind of thing. And also with the regards to the fact that these are three filmmakers who essentially have not made this type of film before. Like one of them has directed a major blockbuster animated film, but it was a very different kind of film. Like they're free from the restrictions that will happen like in your brain if you have spent several years, you know, directing a big Pixar movie because those films all look the same. And it's something that if you're an animation fan, you definitely notice. Because if you look at kind of the the concept art for something like Frozen, there's loads of really interesting concept art, which you can find online. But the end result is something which is very cookie cutter. They all have a very similar kind of, you know, not kind of necessarily like a formula, like a children's Disney cartoon, but an emotional formula where like you have to be crying at the 45 minute mark, you know? Um, and all of the faces look the same and that kind of thing. And in this, it's like there's absolutely none of those restrictions have been enforced. So he clearly gave them a lot of creative control. And so they wound up with all of the elements that we just discussed. And they were allowed to work on it for a really long time and like perfect all of it and make sure that all of the pacing was correct with like the music and the, the one-liners and so forth. Yeah, there was a 
trailer for some movie before this. I don't recall what. All the trailers were bad. It was depressing. It was like literally every single trailer. I was like, I would never watch this movie. There were two trailers for Christian interest movies, which I thought was interesting. I would love to see the market research on that because that's uncommon. But in any case, the others were all, yeah, it was odd. The others were all for animated children's movies. One of them was the Ugly Dolls movie. The what? Which is a thing. Yeah, that's that definitely happening. not happening in Britain. You know, Ugly no, Dolls? Know oh, it's going to be released. It's going to be released there because it's a big studio movie. But they all had the same like digital animation style that is originally Pixar's and then was adopted by everyone. Where like, all the humans look kind of the same. Pixar, to be fair, does a much better job actually now of like, the humans look more like humans. Um, but with like, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but like all the limbs kind of look fake and like the hands are kind of pointy and like the women are very skinny and have like bobs and they kind of shush, smush back and forth when they move. And I was like, this is just uncanny. Like it just looks weird and bad to me. And I don't understand why it's appealing, but clearly this is what they've decided everyone wants. And, you know, no one's allowed to have 2D animation anymore, even though. It's more aesthetically <laughs> pleasing. And um, then all of those trailers played. And then this movie came on. And it was like, oh, this is so much better. <laughs> and it's not, I mean, it basically is 2D. There's, they do some kind of funny stuff with various Well, it's things. like, it's technically um, it's sort of like 3D CGI animation style. Like it's all computer generated, but then... Um, some of the stuff was added with like hand-drawn animation over the tops, so the stuff where they have like the spidey yeah. senses and kind of some of the dialogue writing and that kind of thing. Yeah. But like the effect of watching it, it's not like it looks like an old Disney movie, obviously, yeah. in terms it of It looks like, the... extremely contemporary, especially the, the color scheme. But it it doesn't have the like... Textured, round Three-dimensional. Faces. Yeah, exactly. It looks more planar, which I found very pleasing but it's it's unlike anything i've seen it's just really interesting there were not very many children at my screening perhaps because it was at 10 30 in the morning in the middle of manhattan but there was one child there who was very young um maybe there were more and i just didn't see them and they weren't making very much noise but there was one very young child who i actually felt like was probably too little to be in this movie but he was making a great deal of noise whenever anything exciting happened. Not out of fear, but just out of great enthusiasm for everything that was occurring. And the entire audience was very excited about this because we all enjoyed <laughs> the child who loved it. And I was like, this makes me happy. Like, I'm glad that the kid is liking this. So it was clearly the bright colors were working for this child, I guess. Like, So, yeah, I'm sure that the youngins will be into this one even if some of it will go over their heads a lot of a lot of new cartoonists were born as the result of this film i imagine Ch- children becoming yeah. illustrators and cartoonists is what's going to happen out of this yeah. movie oh yeah for sure especially 100%. since the movie literally um, hammers home the fact that miles is an artist which i wasn't even thinking about consciously until just now but it's like in this movie they decided to make it the miles's hobby is that he draws 
And I was just like, the whole the whole theme of the movie is that anyone could be Spider-Man. And I'm like, oh, obviously it's a manifesto for everyone to watch the movie and become an animator. Because you fucking would. You're going to watch that when you're like 10. You'd be like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Miles is just like me, so I'm going to become an animator. Genius. Very effective. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're training the, the next generation. Yeah, it's going to be a, a fruitful time in the future, I'm sure, for the the young animators i look forward to it because i like being an animated movie they've just recently the american ones anyway have not been the best but this is this is the best that's my my conclusion hopefully it wins an oscar yeah it's my fingers crossed yeah go see this if you have it it's amazing great great holiday movie if you're relaxing have a little bit of time off it's Really, and if really you like great. it, there I is a new Miles Morales comic, which for once Mile, uh, Marvel did actually launch a comic at the right time to tie in with a new movie audience, which they weirdly never do. Um, but there's a new one. It's written by Saladin Ahmed and it's very fun. It's good. Good Miles Morales comic. You, you heard it here. Um, thank you all so much for listening. Go see this movie. Uh, our next episode coming soon will be about um, up at Treasure Island, a Patreon request from some time ago that we are finally getting to. We've had a bit yeah, of a we, we still have a couple to go before we wrapped up all of our current here. Patreon requests. <laughs> yes. Um, we should do we should be doing this pretty yeah. quickly. Uh, the fall is the most busy time of the year culturally, so there's just been a lot going on. Um, but that will be coming soon. If you would like to support us on Patreon, either by making us watch a movie or for a lower dollar amount you can find us at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast uh otherwise you can find us at our website overinvestedpodcast.com on twitter at overinvestedpod or on tumblr at overinvestedpodcast thanks bye